the deck is a demonstration of your thinking. And so, like, if you think about what the goal of the deck is, the goal of the deck is to get the meeting, right? And then the goal of the meeting is to get another meeting, which, because no one's going to read a deck and be like, yes, here's the money, right? Like, there's a process, but it, it's a sort of progressive learning and trust-building exercise. And so I think that conversation is really important. I was at a recent pitch with I thought was pretty interesting where the founder actually, in addition to the deck, actually sent over a page of like FAQs. Like, here are questions that other investors have asked me. Here's what I said. So that basically when you start the meeting, you're kind of already advanced in the conversation, which I actually thought was a great way to kind of move the ball forward in an effective way. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Al, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, sci-fi nerd, and dad of two daughters. Mondays for your weekly tech news debate with Shiyan Ko, managing partner of Hustle Fund. Wednesdays for interviews of regional changemakers covering both the highs and lows of leadership. Fridays for personal diary insights and listener questions and answers. Join our movement of over 12,000 members for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.bravesea.com. Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? You know how painful it is. Acevil helps your in-house team by taking tough tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia-Pacific, which includes onboarding, procurement, device management, real-time IT support, offboarding, and more. Gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place with our state-of-the-art platform. Check out Esevel, E-S-E-V-E-L.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code BRAVE for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. Morning, Cheyenne. Another week, another episode. Morning, Jeremy. Yeah, I'm so curious. We started talking and de debating about what we want to talk about and we landed on the theme of like Lost in Translation. And I was like, yeah, I love that suggestion because I'm a big sucker for the movie Lost in Translation. I don't know if you have watched it. Bill Murray, Scarlett Bill Johansson. Murray. Who doesn't love Scarlett Johansson? It's such a beautiful art house movie about two folks being isolated and lonely and Lost in Translation in a beautiful Tokyo setting. Love that movie. And I think we're not going to discuss the movie. We're going to discuss, I think, what you want to talk about, which is, I think, when founders and VCs are talking to each other and there's no connection, right? Or there's some sort of disconnection or mistranslation that's happening. So we'd love to hear about what you think when you hear of the phrase lost in translation in the startup context. Yeah, you know, I think sometimes we forget that there's a very specific language and set of practices associated with venture backed companies and venture financing and or relatively younger ecosystem. And so many for many more first-time founders and perhaps maybe fewer mentors who've been there, done that before to kind of guide these first-time founders along the path. Although, of course, there's tons of material online to kind of peruse and, and, and get in. And so I think 
sometimes we always say 99% of our job is saying no. That's kind of what we do all day long. But you forget that for the founder, like this is their whole 100% of their day is working on their business, right? And so getting a no, sometimes I think it feels a little bit like someone's telling you that your baby is not cute. And that's kind of distressing because obviously you think your baby is cute. You think your baby's the cutest thing on earth. Otherwise, you wouldn't have gone all in to start a business. And so I thought it might just be fun to explore, right, like, some of these common interactions or communications and talk through what is meant by these things and like what you should take away. And then I think talking about the various stakeholders and their incentives and motivations in the ecosystem as well can be helpful because that I think gives you a better understanding for where people are coming from. And it, I think maybe it kind of depersonalizes some of the interactions because you can kind of understand people's motivations a little bit more. Yeah, uh, before we dive into that, I love what you said about kind of like the ecosystem is so young. And so people don't really understand. A lot of VCs don't actually understand how founders feel, like you said, and a lot of founders don't understand how VCs feel. And there's lots of stories of founders who print out the VC rejection email and then they paste it on the monitor. And then I've actually heard two separate stories of two different founders in Southeast Asia have done that. And so I'm like, I'm pretty sure the VC had no idea whatever they're writing was going to end up being printed on the monitor. And I think having obviously being an ecosystem for both the US and Southeast Asia, I think there's also more awareness on both sides, like you said, right? I think a lot of founders actually have, a lot of them have VC experience actually, and they also have, understand how VCs are thinking, but vice versa, a lot of VCs actually have founder experience. So they're kind of like more aware, right? And have more empathy of that situation. So I think there's an interesting, I have hope that as the Southeast Asia system matures, I think there'll be more of this conversation will be part of that journey for a lot of folks. So on that note, what do you think is one common misunderstanding between folks? I think maybe like a place to start is to think about like, is the business venture backable? Is it a venture scale business? And kind of to take a step back there and think about VCs have bosses too. It's their LPs, their limited partner. And what are the return thresholds that those LPs have in their minds when they made the investment into the fund that is now evaluating a startup. And so I think for the asset class, and it varies depending on the stage of the the stage that people are investing and the check sizes and things, right? But I think a rule of thumb is you kind of have to imagine that this business can get to a hundred million of revenue in five to seven years, because a typical VC fund is 10 years. And so if you can't really see a path to that, then it doesn't mean it's a bad business. It just means that it might not be a venture scale business on the time frame that investors are looking for. And so I think that's something to keep in mind too, right? When people say stuff like, oh, I don't know how scalable this is. And then founders get really upset, right? They're like, oh, but look at my CAC, like, look at my this, look at my, And you're like, yeah, but like, what would I have to believe for this to be a hundred million revenue business in like five to seven years? And you kind of like do the bad calculation and it's like, yeah, I think that's pretty challenging. So I think that's like one aspect is like, think about kind of, there's other stakeholders here at play. And then I think the other thing too, is that investing isn't an absolute game. It's a relative game. So even if your business is great, if it's not in the top handful of things that that investor is seeing, it gets, it kind of falls off the consideration set. And so I think that's the other thing that people don't think about as well. They don't necessarily... And, understandably, right? You're 100% focused on your business. So you're not worrying about other people's businesses. And you might not have an awareness of like, how fast they're growing or what kind of numbers they're putting up or things like that. And so it's hard for you to get that sense. But I think those are two things that I think are like helpful framings to understand kind of where an investor may be coming from 
when when they're in dialogue with you. Yeah, I want to respond to that. Um, yeah, for venture backable, I mean, recently the founder of Din Tai Fung, which was a billion dollar company, the founder is Yang Pingyi, really died. So RIP, rest in peace. And yeah, he built an amazing business for the world. My wife loves it. I think my First child, one third of her baby calories was formed from Din Tai Fung because she ate so much and I can never go to Din Tai Fung ever again because I ate way too much of it following her. You know, it brought so much joy. It's a legacy for the family. It's a sustainable business and not venture backable, right? I mean, it took them over 30 years to actually grow into that business that they have as a billion dollar company. And yeah, just from a VC perspective, <laughs> they would have gotten a no, right? And then, yeah, by all our standards of success, this is a successful company, right? But that kind of business would have done well, perhaps with private equity investors or could have done with angels or a whole bunch of different investors that could have made that decision. But for venture capital as an asset class, they have made legal contracts, right? With limited partners to say like, hey, we're going to return you this target rate of return, right? Within the next 10 years. And so I think it, it's weird because sometimes you meet so many companies where you're like, yeah, this is going to be successful over 20 years or 30 years, but does this need to be successful in 10 years, right? And I think that's a underappreciated part of the pacing, right? And so it's not even advisable, right, for the founder to go to talk to VCs in that sense because you can actually break a lot of businesses when you try to move too fast, actually. I mean, a, a common problem, for example, is like trying to change consumer behavior, right? And I think obviously there's a lot of reward. I think if you're able to change customer behavior, make unlock customer behavior that wasn't going to happen in the next 10 years and make it happen in the next 10 years, then something amazing can happen. But sometimes it's going to take longer, right? To educate folks, to get people to where they are. And that can be a very painful experience because you're trying to throw millions of dollars into changing people who don't want to change in the next 10 years. But it could change in 20 or 30 years. And that's why all these famous stories, right? Remember like pets.com was the early Amazon, right? It was just like 20 years too early. Lots of different stories around that. Cool. Yeah, I don't know. I thought it might be fun just to do like a few of these common, I don't know, lost in translation phrases or thoughts and kind of say like, when you hear this, what do you hear, Jeremy? You know, and like, what what is the intent versus what is being said? And how could this be interpreted or misinterpreted? Yeah, I was just thinking about lots of different things. Oh, I think a common misinterpretation is when a VC is asking a lot of questions a lot of them pretty aggressively within an hour is probably a good sign and not a bad sign because, because I think I, I've met a lot of founders kind of get very defensive in that sense. And I've been there like if they're asking a lot of questions because when people ask questions, it can come across as like, I don't believe you. I don't understand. I'm like, it comes across as very like interrogative. But what I've started to notice now is like, the worst case scenario is a VC who's not interested. If they're not asking questions, that's probably a really bad sign because they're kind of piecing out, they're checked out, they're just trying to wrap the meeting and be done with it. But I think for someone who's like really interested, they can get, you know, really excited, right? And it can come across as a bit of interrogation. I'm not saying that a VCs can't improve how they do it. It obviously can be more charming and charismatic and warm and optimistic and positive. But I think in general, I think it's more positive when people ask more questions than it is for them to not ask questions from my perspective. What do you think, Shin? Yeah, I mean, I would agree, right? Like, you can think about venture investing or whatever. Like, it's kind of like dating, right? You're just trying to decide, are you going to spend more time or money on this person or this company? And so you're trying to figure that out in the slot that you have, right? And if the answer is no, it's better for both parties if you just kind of get to the answer faster so no one's time is wasted. And yeah, I would tend to agree that like, 
because you're trying to figure that out, more questions is generally better because you're really kind of trying to dig into what is the heart of the business and, and the thesis. And I would say I think defensiveness is a red flag on the investor side because there's just going to be so many things that are going to happen in the entrepreneurial journey that are unknown and people are going to ask questions and it's going to be super unexpected and like being defensive generally doesn't help you solve problems faster. And I think it also makes you think like, oh, wow, what's my relationship going to be with this founder if they're already defensive on day zero? That reminds so. me of NDAs. I just received a request for an NDA by someone who's really experienced, actually. And I was surprised, actually, to get a request from their head of CopDev, actually. What was their reason for it? I think they just said, sign the NDA. Maybe they were just hoping I'll sign it. Maybe, But then I was like, I just said no, pretty much effectively, because it's not industry practice, because all, we'll talk about the good reasons why, but I just said, please share the information that you're comfortable sharing without an NDA, and whatever you feel is NDAable, you just keep it to the side, and then let's talk from that conversation, right? And I think, don't worry, the meeting's still happening and so, so forth, but it's kind of funny because I feel like there's already so much public knowledge from my perspective about how NDAs are not common practice. It's actually a bad signal often in startup land, but it still happens like about once every two weeks for me, right? So... Yeah. Oh, wow. That's quite common. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't see them too much in the pre-seed, but periodically they do. I do have a canned response that's like, please read this blog post about why we don't sign NDAs. Hey, my mom, my most popular okay. blog post is actually a blog post about why we don't sign VC NDAs as well. So yeah, it's an interesting. So what's okay. So let's talk about the loss in translation aspect about it. So what's the loss in translation aspect about NDAs? First of all, like we see hundreds of companies a month, right? And so the sort of legal work of tracking and enforcing like what we see and like say is just kind of not feasible but i think the meta point more here is like if something that you told me in a 30-minute meeting could be materially threatening to your business it's probably not that great a business and so, so i just find that really hard to believe right that like I, I think the one exception is like maybe if it is like like a corporate interaction not a startup interaction like a corporate with some sort of like heavy IP, like science-y type of thing, maybe. But that's not really the realm we deal in. Like we're in software, like today you could tell GPT to write you almost anything. So, so I think like a lot of this stuff is not actually valuable as information. And I think the second thing is like, if you think it is, that makes me worried. Like then I, I think you might not have a, complete view of like what it was going to take to build a business. I think people are afraid. I think for companies that are further along, people are afraid of like their financial information being disclosed to competitors. And I guess I kind of have two thoughts about that. One is like the integrity of the person you're talking with is like really important and an NDA doesn't guarantee integrity. And yeah, like if it's a first meeting, I probably wouldn't put all my detailed financial information if I'm a like series B, series C company in an intro deck, right? I have some sympathy, but I think mostly for like early stage companies that haven't really gotten a ton of traction yet, I, I find it pretty hard to believe. And I think we, we just don't sign NDAs. Yeah, when I was a founder, I could feel the desire, obviously, to keep things as confidential as possible. So on the other side of the table, I also do understand why it means, why you want to keep these confidential because... Yeah, if things are going great, you don't want to other people to know and hide from them. And if things are going bad, you don't want to show people as well, right? So it's kind of like, where's that sweet spot that I mean, doesn't really exist, right? So in general, I think you want to keep it tighter to that conversation. So 
for me, I just share with people just like, look, at the end of the day, of course, you know, when you go on a date, right, with that VC as well, you're trying to understand are they a good faith actor? Do you like them? Do you want to work with them more? So it's just like a date, right? You don't, well, you can go to first base kind of like a couple of dates in, right? So what I'm trying to say here is like, you can be progressive. Wow, we're getting really risky well, here, I, well, Jeremy. Okay. <laughs> Anyway, so I'm just saying here is like, I, I, think, I think there's that progressive disclosure of information, right, that you have here, right? And I think you can ramp up when you're at your comfort levels over time. You can share it over Docsend and these kind of like protective links, right? That you can retract the data after the, the relationship has ended because, you know, it doesn't work out in terms of a deal. And, you know, share information that you're comfortable sharing with, right? And it's a conversation, right? I think it's also a responsibility of VCs to help increase the trust level and comfort level of founders as well so that they kind of like feel comfortable sharing more information. The tricky part, like you said, is you have an hour, right? And so like there's not a lot of time and then, I don't know, it's not an easy set of conversations for sure. Another last translation point I thought of recently was how does this scale? And I think obviously that's a general version of it, but also it's a very Southeast Asian kind of version of it, right? Because there's so many different geographies, right? So like, Singapore, Indonesia, Vietnam, Thailand, Philippines, Malaysia. So different definitions of scale. Like how does it scale and expand to other countries, right? And that's often actually a very weird question, I think, for a founder to face, especially when you're very young, right? I mean, they're like in one country and then suddenly the VC is like, how does this scale to this other country, right? And it does feel like a bit of abrupt, right? Because you're like discussing the current business and suddenly the VC is like time jumping in the future, two or three years in the future, right? Effectively. Yeah. I mean, I think there it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is like, can this get to 100 million of revenue in some reasonable time frame? And if your home market is a small one, then you have to go outside of your home market, right? So that's kind of the like, can I believe that this thing can go there? And I don't know. I think there's a flip side to this too, which is like, I think sometimes people, because of this question, they're like, and then I'm going to launch in five countries at the same time in month eight. And you're like, oh boy, that's tricky. I think, I guess I think of this question more as a conversation. Like, how do you think about what things in your business are copy and pasteable or scalable across geographies versus what things have to be started from scratch each time? And how are you going to learn about those things? So I'm more interested, like when I ask this question, I'm more interested in how somebody thinks about this than having like the pat answer. In general, when people say they're going to launch in five countries at the same time, it makes me very nervous because basically like the scope of complexity you then have to manage explodes. And as a small company with limited resources, it becomes really, really hard. And you end up spending a lot of time firefighting instead of actually making like deep substantive progress. And then sometimes people come back and be like, oh, but I'm going to do it on the cheap. Like, I'm going to just have one person or I'm going to like do this thing remotely or whatever. And then you're like, well, then is that really an expansion? So I think it's it's much more of a conversation opener than like, uh, hey, I, I think there's some sort of perfect answer to this question. That brings me to another point, which is lost in translation, is that I think a lot of founders are very focused on the pitch deck Yet, actually, it's really about the relationship and the evaluation of the founder, right? As a business leader of this new technology, right? Um, so, I, I think having a deck that says, oh, we're going to expand to five countries is not really a problem per se in that sense. But it's really about what it exhibits about the judgment, right? About the realism of the traction of how hard it is when the rubber hits the road about 
to build one country, let alone five, for example. And then how is that person thinking about, is this person doing it to overpromise? Is this person doing it because they really think it's doable and very easy? I think good decks are actually good crystallizations of good business judgment, which shows up in the Q&A. It shows up in a conversation. It shows up in the decisions. And I think it also shows up in the, actually the growth history of the company, right? And so to some extent, I think a lot of people kind of focus on the deck you know, as the deliverable when it's really about, there's a lot of judgment needed, right? And any startup that's being decided today is a giant experiment being done in process, right? So I think that's a lot of thinking there. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the deck is a demonstration of your thinking. And so like, if you think about what the goal of the deck is, the goal of the deck is to get the meeting, right? And then the goal of the meeting is to get another meeting which, because no one's going to read a deck and be like, yes, here's the money, right? Like there's a process, but it, it's a sort of progressive learning and trust building exercise. And so I think that conversation is really important. I was at a recent pitch with, I thought was pretty interesting where the founder actually, in addition to the deck, actually sent over a page of like FAQs. Like here are questions that other investors have asked me. Here's what I said. So that basically when you start the meeting, you're kind of already advanced in the conversation, which I actually thought was a great way to kind of move the ball forward in an effective way. And trust building too, because it wasn't all sugarcoated. It was like, yeah, they asked me this. I don't actually know the answer to this, but this is how I would figure it out. I think that's actually a very good answer because it helps display thinking. Yeah, that's actually a good point, right? Which is how should VCs react when they're getting a ton of information immediately, right? So I think it's quite common, I think, for founders to feel like VCs don't get it. And I definitely felt like that when I was pitching. And in retrospect, it's because I was getting this totally new industry, totally redefining the problem, dropping them a solution, right? And then they're processing that on the fly. Yeah, it's hard for them to get it, right? Unless they already have been thinking about a problem, right? So... I'm not saying that the optimal approach is to send decks beforehand, et cetera, but I think sending some kind of pre-read before a meeting, and, and the truth is not every VC is going to read all of it, right? But I think the good VCs that are you know, a bit conscientious, well, obviously don't send it like an hour before because nobody's going to read it during that time frame or even check the email. But I think if you send something out like a few days before, I think it's quite consistent for, I think the VC to just kind of scan and read it and kind of like think through the dimensions of it. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I think, I don't know, the the other thing I would also say is just like, VCs make mistakes all the time. So I don't consider myself an arbiter of truth or whatever. It's just with the information I have and what I know, here's like my best guess. And I generally hope that everyone is successful. And so I try to give feedback in that spirit. Ooh, I like that one. Here's my best guess. Maybe I should say that more often as well, right? Because when I was a founder, I took all this feedback very personally that's one but also you take it as like truth right in that sense right and the tricky part is like there's some truth within it because they're seeing something there's some independent judgment and in general vcs are trying to be generalist experts right and pattern matching so there's some aspects about it but you can't take the whole thing and just take it at face value right and say like oh that's a be all and end all to my business like oh five people said no is definitely a no but i think the more mature way would be like for me to sit down and just be like okay, what are the consistent parts and what do I need to work on? Is it a communication issue? Is it a part of the business I didn't know I didn't know? Are they seeing something in a macro market that's divergent from what I'm thinking about? So I think that's asking for feedback is actually a good way. I think when you hear no, I think 
trying to set up a call half an hour just to be like, hey, can you just walk me through your reasoning and what you're seeing in the market? I think this can be a very helpful exercise to kind of like figure out the difference. Yeah, I guess the other thing that I always try to tell people is like, you didn't start a company to raise money, you started a company to make money. And so rather than, I mean, partially like, here we are talking about like what VCs are saying or communicating or whatever, but like, how does this, how does what they are saying help you make money faster? Like less about if you frame the problem less about like, how do I get them to agree with me? And more about like, is there anything in what they're saying that actually strengthens my business? strengthens the quality of my thinking around my business or what I would try or do, then you're likely to advance the business faster, right? And it's sort of like when people ask me, like, what do VCs want to hear or see? And I'm like, well, what do you want to hear or see in your business? Because ultimately, you're the one who has to operate this business. And that, I think, ultimately has to be the final thing, right? Because you're the one holding the bag. And so if I were a founder and people are like, this segment is really hard to sell into. Here are some data points. I would either try to like validate that myself, right? And be like, no, you're wrong. I have this other thing. That's why I'm, or you're like, oh yeah, they might be right. They've seen five companies try to sell at this. I might try to pick a different segment. It's sort of like, I think that will help you, right? So maybe you don't spend like 24 months pounding your head into a wall and instead like find something that's like a little bit easier to get momentum in. I agree. I use a phrase, don't let the tail wag the dog. Don't let venture capitalists wag the business as you as the leader. The founder's in charge. The founder builds a great business. All the VCs will come in and tell you how amazing you are and how a no-brainer and super obvious that, you know, it was going to be a success, right? If your business is not doing well, then everybody can have opinion, right? So I think I always say is like, hey, like build the business that you think makes sense. Let the customer be the true feedback loop here and then it will show up right it'll show up in your revenue numbers it'll show up in your growth it'll show up in your team it'll show up in your understanding of the customer and then the vc is not a customer right the vc is an observer and kind of like trying to understand and obviously make a decision right why else are there lost in translation moments from your perspective oh here's one i don't know if you get this one but like i only want to speak with a partner so some people are like i don't want to talk to junior people and I think there's two sides. Everything has two sides of the coin, right? So I think on the one hand, as firms get bigger, they bring on more investment team members. And so those people are all part of the evaluation process. And often non-partners do a lot of work in verticals and can know a lot about a specific set of areas. And generally more enthusiastic, I would say, less beaten down. And trying to bypass them to go to the partner sometimes can backfire because they are part of the process. I would say like the flip side of that is having been an associate at a venture fund, I think if you are dealing with more seasoned founders, it can feel a little bit like weird. Like, why is this 22 year old questioning me on my business that I've been in for 20 years? And then I think the onus then is on the investor to basically be prepared and be respectful, right? Because I think at the end of the day, like this is the relationship, right? The relationship that you're setting the groundwork for is at least a 10 year relationship for the life of this investment. And you want everyone in the firm to kind of be on your side, helping your business. But I think on the investor side, like you need to make the founder feel like they're respected as well. And not just that, hey, I'm, I'm the guy with the capital. So 
I can do whatever I want. I think that's also not a great place to start a relationship, right? And so going back to like the meta thing is like, this is a trusted relationship. How do you build trust with each other and how do you find the right partners to be on the journey together with? Oh, this one. I mean, I think there's some truth to it as well, right? I mean, I think when you meet a partner, it's just one decision, right? There's no loss in translation moment. When you give the data to an associate, the associate may or may not filter correctly based on the partner's judgment. And then it gets lost, right? Because the partner is a bunch of other stuff, right? So I think... If you can talk to a partner directly, I think take the opportunity, right? So if the partner has office hours, go for it. If the partner is having a talk and there's a chance for you to interact with them afterwards and you have your elevator pitch down flat to a minute, do it. If you happen to run into the VC at the reception counter and you recognize the person, I actually did that, by the way, right? I literally was like reading this VC, the blog, and then I recognized the VC while we were checking in at the reception. And then I just like had to quickly double check my phone to make sure I wasn't talking to the wrong person. And after that, I pitched him and he worked out, right? I think if you can get a partner opportunity, take it. I think it should be part, like you said, is the partners are so swamped, right? With talking to their bosses and LPs, managing the fund, et cetera, that they themselves are, I don't know. There's a sweet spot, right? I, I would say, don't talk to an associate who's joined one month ago. <laughs> this is maybe like new to the company, probably a little bit. We were all that associate once. So you're like angry at me now. I'm like perpetuating a cycle of ignorance. No, no, no. I mean, I think, no, no. I mean, I think it's sort of like, just because someone is new in their career doesn't mean they know nothing. Yeah. Right. And so like you can use that as an opportunity to learn more about the fund's investment process, like what they're focused on right now, like what are the things, but also I think getting clarity on that process and moving along that funnel is also important. I think principals are a good sweet spot, right? For like folks who are like all these senior associates, people who have been with the fund for a couple of years, then I think to some extent, they've already absorbed what the fund is looking for. I think they're a little bit more comfortable giving advice and patterns, for example, as well as more efficient in their processes in terms of communications and less risk for misunderstandings. So I have to say, uh, I think there's truth to it, right? If you can get a partner opportunity, go for it. But I think it's just tough. I think partners are so gated these days. So who are the gatekeepers, right? In a sense, I don't know. Well, I don't. I don't have an associate, so feel free to talk to me. <laughs> Reach out to Shian at you know. Anyway. <laughs> Shian, yeah, feel free. Submit through the form. Tweet at me. LinkedIn direct mail message. Oh God, not LinkedIn, please. <laughs> oh yeah, and I think one thing, of course, I think we were talking about as well is like loss in translation a little bit. That's correlated to this is like, is this normal or not? Right, because. Is this something that was lost in translation or is this actually not industry standard? It's actually bad faith. It's actually out of the norm, right? So how do we figure out what's something that's normal or not normal? I think you want to try to understand people's like incentives and motivations, right? And I think it goes back to like, do I want to be in business with this person for the next 10 years? So like, what are people's motivations? Like, of course, an investor's motivation is like, they want to get the best price for the deal at which they can win the deal. Right. And so you can't really fault them for that because that is their obligation to LPs. But then how do they do that? How are they achieving their goal? I guess. Right. And 
do you believe that the way by which they achieve their goal is representative of their future behavior? So is it like, hey, we're going to bring comps in and say, like, based on this, here's like what I think your business is valued? Or are they trying to hurry you along so that you don't generate competition for the deal and kind of they get bid up? And it's hard, right? Because like, once they are investors, they're technically they're supposed to be on your side. But in this sort of preamble to that you're kind of on opposite sides of the fence so i think it's a tough one but i think you need to like it's like a relationship you have to determine what is their motivation and like where is that coming from and is this going to be reflective of their future behavior i think that's a tough topic right because it's hard to tell i mean when i was a founder there was like good investors and there were bad investors that means bad in the sense that they're not good and they're like not smart slash not good in terms of value creation investors. And there were professional investors and there were non-professional investors. And I think those are kind of like interesting, right? I mean, I think it's easier to judge whether you're professional or not, right? So you could be a professional investor who's just not savvy slash not value add, right? And that can be a bit hard to evaluate. But also I think there's actually a lot of tough moments that happen, right? Because like you said, there's an investor dynamic, but then eventually they become board members. They're supposed to be helping you build the business. And those are kind of like two different skill sets, you know, I would say, right? You know, when you told me about the date thing, yeah, I think at one level, if you have a really bad first date, it's probably predictive <laughs> that it's not going to be a good marriage, probably, because it's the sea crystal, right? It's kind of like showing the pattern for the future, right? Especially after the second or third date. But just because you have really good dates and you kind of like get engaged doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a good marriage, right? To raise kids together. I'm turning to a dad. <laughs> but yeah, and yeah, I think this is a place where diligence can help. So talking to other founders who have worked with an investor to ask them what their experience was working with them. And then I think investors do this too, right? Like you diligence a person by back-channeling with their prior colleagues or bosses, people they've worked with, to get a feel of who they are as a person. And so I think that's also something to think about as you're sort of collecting term sheets and trying to make a decision on who is going to be on your cap table. Yeah, I think reference checks about who's good, who's bad, when they're actually on the board is quite key. I think I discussed this as well in the previous Brave episode Q&A for those interested. But I think reference checks are interesting because there's a little bit of a code of silence, right? So we talked about it before, right? Which is, I think that there are bad behaviors, right? By both founders and by VCs, right? And I always hear about it in conversation, right? It's like, oh, this person did this, this person did that. This person inflated the numbers and you slipped through the transaction. This person inflated accounting and it was, we found out two years down the road and then we swept it under the rug. So, you know, I think sweeping a lot of stuff gets swept under the rug, right? So how do you feel about that? It sucks. I feel like it sucks. Look, like, I think we just want to do business with people of high integrity who are trying their best. And I want to hope that that's true of everyone, right? Like, but I do think there's some times there are people who are playing a game that they feel like they'll be rewarded if they inflate their numbers and they can sort of play the game long enough that reality can catch up to what they're projecting. And I think that's a dangerous game to play and I'm not smart enough to play that game. So I prefer that we just live in reality and we can be honest with each other. And what we tell founders when we write the check is 
we've been in your shoes before and generally startups, something is going wrong all the time. So you don't have to paint a rosy picture because we know something is blowing up right now. And it's much better that you tell us what's going wrong earlier rather than later, because then we have a better shot of helping. I think often with Asian founders, they don't like to tell you when things are going badly. And when I've pushed them on this, they'll say stuff like, well, I didn't just want to come with a problem. I wanted to come with a solution. And you're like, that's admirable. But like, I'm on your side. I'm trying to help you problem solve. And so we're not going to be helpful with every problem. That's not possible. But to the extent that we can help you, we would like to. But also, if you get into a pickle later, and you've been telling some people that like everything's going great, everything's going great, and suddenly you're like, wait, I need emergency bridge financing now. Then you're like, wait, but you told me everything was going great. It doesn't build trust, basically, right? Versus sort of like more transparently saying, this is what's going well in the business, but here are the things that are really hard for us right now. Here's how we're trying to fix it. Do you have any thoughts? And then the next month's report comes in, it's like, Oh, remember A, B, and C we were struggling with? We fixed A. We're still working on B and C. Here's kind of how it's tracking. All these, I think, intermediate data points give people a lot more confidence so that like, when you are in a pickle, it's a lot easier to help because then you can say, then the partner is willing to go to their partnership and be like, hey, this person has been up and up the whole time. We should put in this bridge financing. We should extend our reputation to help these people. And I think that's the world that I hope for, right? Like, we want this sort of, positive some world where like entrepreneurs can all be successful they are all creating value that didn't exist before they're hiring and employing people who didn't have those those jobs didn't exist before it's not a zero-sum game right yeah unfortunately i do think that there are people who don't feel comfortable doing that and it's really bad right because then people who are more honest they feel like well i'm not comfortable inflating numbers but those guys who are getting funded like they feel very upset with that right so yeah I totally agree. And I, I think it's not just uh, Asians, but also I think professional services backgrounds. So I was trained as a consultant to always have the answer, right? To always have be show your expertise, have the answer, have a very clear agenda. And the agenda is basically like, know exactly by the end of the meeting what you're going to get out of the meeting, right? And I remember I, I got heart checked by actually, I think to James Chan, right? So founder of VC, great guy. And I was building again. And he basically like just said like, exactly what you just said, right? Like, we're here to discuss what the problem is and help each other. And you're coming to me like a consultant, right? Like you have to hold all the answers, right? So we're not going to get to where we want to be unless we open up the aperture, right? On this agenda, right? And I really appreciated that advice. And I think I share that advice often with other folks, right? Because, you know, how do we build something together, right? That's the crux of it. And I think at the end of the day, it requires, I think, a good faith effort by both founders, but especially VCs as well, right? Because I think VCs are going to be in the ecosystem for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, right? And I think it's really on us to be good faith, long-term game, good people, right? At the end of the day. On that note, we're going to wrap things up and want to do two shout outs. First of all is if you have any other ideas about Lost in Translation moments, let us know and we'll be happy to dissect them more in the future. And two is a shout out to Johan Sier for being a listener who gave us some feedback that has helped us launch the show and make things better, especially for the website and for a lot of the community members. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well 
and stay brave. Mm-hmm.